This is our Parinirvana session. We are here because of the Buddha's enlightenment, the fact of the Buddha's enlightenment. In celebration of the fact that this human being became enlightened. In celebration of the fact that he opened a path and taught the path for years, decades, so that we could follow it. In celebration of the fact that he handed it down and that others handed it down generation after generation, over 82 generations down to the present moment. We come in celebration of the fact that the Buddha began the turning of the Dharma wheel for this era. And that we are able to keep that wheel turning by the activity of our bodies and minds and hearts here in our place of practice. And of course in our lives. The wheel of Dharma doesn't keep turning except that we practice it. We are here in celebration, in commemoration, and in gratitude that this practice has continued this long and that we are living in such fortunate circumstances that we are able to practice it. We are here because of our own enlightenment. We're here because of our own enlightenment, our own ever-present, but cleverly hidden enlightenment. We're here because we know there's a better way to live, better than being chronically anxious about the state of the world or the conditions of those we love. We're here because we know there's a better way to live than to be predicting our imminent death whenever we get an uncomfortable or strong body sensation. We're here because we know there's a better way to live than to feel uncomfortable in the company of other people. We're here because we know there's a better way to live than to be chronically judgmental of others or to be angry or irritated with them. We're here because we know there's a better way to live than to be harassed and abused and driven to do harmful things by our own minds. A very wise part of us knows that there is a different way to live within this body, heart, and mind. A very wise part of us brought us here to Sashin. We know that our sojourn in this particular collection of physical and psychological elements will be brief. This is a very short collective of physical and psychological elements. 
even in the scale of human evolution, 200,000 years. We're just a brief in that scale, as you traverse that scale of human evolution. We're a brief and yet, however brief that we want to live, leave things. We want to live so that we leave things better than when we entered this unique but brief life. We genuinely want to leave things better within ourselves and, of course, whatever we pass to the world. So a very wise part of us brought us here to session, called us to session, overrode the mind's objections to all the things we had to do to get here. And a very compassionate part of us brought us to session. While we are here in a functioning body, we want to do something, something, to tip the balance away from terrorism, both internal and external, away from hatred and sorrow, and toward kindness, towards joy, and toward love. But we also know that the world is not in our control. To my surprise, one of my doctors, my gastroenterologist, told me that he considers that the mind and body are not separate and that it's just a big ball of energy. And he started going on about this big ball of energy. And I'm going, wow, that's amazing. He said, it's an unimaginably complex system. Unimaginably complex system. I talk a lot about the microbiome, the millions of organisms living within our body. And just that system is unimaginably complex and interrelated, intertied with all of our being, including states of depression or happiness, including our heart, including our pancreas, all of our body. And then he said, if people could realize that they're not in control, that many of the things that happen to them are just bad luck, they would be a lot happier. So it's been raining hard for days in Portland and out here. But in Portland, there are floods and roads, roads are closed and people are upset about the commute taking so long to get home because they have to detour around the closed roads in the flooded areas. I guess they feel that we should have gained control over how water falls from the sky by now. I guess they feel that we should have gained control at the same time we ourselves are creating climate change.
when your plane is late, or they have to change planes because of a mechanical problem. People get so upset. Like, why can't they control the planes? Well, they're mechanical things and they break down. Why can't we control the weather? Well, not only are we not able to control it, we're making it worse. At this stage in practice, we all realize that the only person that we have a tiny bit of influence over is ourselves. The only person that we can possibly change, and that takes a lot of hard work, is ourselves. If enlightenment were easy, everybody would be enlightened. We'd be out of business. That'd be great, but we'd be out of business. It's hard work. It's hard work untangling the conditioning of fixed beliefs of a lifetime and maybe way more than one lifetime. It's hard work, but it's the best work that we can do. If the world is not in our control and the only thing we have a bit of influence over is ourselves, then we have to look at what parts we can control. We know that the body is largely out of our control. That's part of what my doctor was speaking to. The body is largely out of our control. I am of the nature to become old. I am of the nature to become ill. I am of the nature to die. No matter how much we tinker, no matter how much we invent with technology, the five remembrances are true. No matter how much we ignore them, the five remembrances are true. Right view includes an awareness of these five remembrances. Not a frightened, twitchy, reactive, nervous awareness, but a calm acceptance and a remembering. So we aren't surprised when they manifest. Oh. The five remembrances are manifesting. We can say, oh, here it is, aching joints. I'm of the nature to grow old. True. Oh, here it is, a cold and a cough. Oh. I am of the nature to become ill. True. And then when death approaches, we may, we may be able to say, we may have the awareness and the ability to say in our minds, oh, here it is, I've been expecting you. True yet again. Mahushan and I were laughing a few weeks ago about getting old. We were saying when we were younger, we would think, look at that old person. Why can't they just spring up off the floor and bounce up the stairs? I'll never be that way. They, they should just stop being that way. Ha, says impermanence. I have a surprise in store for you. And yet, if we're not clinging, resisting, or going unconscious, old age and illness and death could contain some very interesting surprises. We really don't have much control over our body except for helping it obtain the best fuel to do its tireless 24-7 work. This is the big secret that doctors have. We know how to make people as healthy as possible. Put healthy things into your body. 
real food, clean water, clean air, and most important, loving kindness. Put loving kindness into your body so it can do the work that it knows how to do, digesting, fighting harmful cells like bacteria and cancer cells, circulating all the elements that we need to live, excreting elements that would harm us. It's doing that for us, 724. We couldn't possibly do it for ourselves. We couldn't possibly control it with our minds. We don't have much control over our body except to care for it well. It is the only one that we have for this lifetime. It is the only one that we have to use to sit on a cushion and practice. What we do have some ability to change is our heart-mind. And not just in small ways like reading inspiring mottos or being kinder to the postman. But we can actually change our heart-mind in very radical ways. And that's why we're here. We are here because we are after that transformation. And it is that very transformation that calls to us from inside. From inside ourselves where it resides. Where it has always resided since before we were born. Since before this temporary constellation of elements came together. It has always resided. In this body, heart, mind, it is closer than our breath more intimate than the heart and the blood that courses within that darkness within. More intimate than the heart that beats and the blood that courses in the darkness within. It is so obvious and yet hidden to us. But it calls, let me out, let me out. Let me out. Let me function freely in your life. We call it all kinds of names. Buddha nature, essential nature, ground of being, luminous awareness, luminous beingness, the unconditioned, many names. But as soon as we name it, it becomes the other. Other than me. It can only be experienced. And to experience it requires that we first enter the experience of dropping the self. Dogen Zenji's phrase, to study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things is not just a Zen concept. To forget the self is not something that came along with the development of Chan and Zen Buddhism. In the preface to the long discourses of the Buddha, the translator Maurice Walsh discusses the idea of nirvana. We should be very curious about nirvana. What is nirvana? The entomology of the word is blowing out, like blowing out a candle or a lamp, extinguishing. 
And Walsh says, some Western scholars still hold the erroneous view that nirvana implies total extinction. And yet it would be odd indeed if Buddhists were supposed to have trod the entire path right up to the attainment of arhantship merely in order to finish up with total obliteration, that total obliteration which the materialists and many ordinary people today assume occurs for us all, good, bad, or indifferent, at the end of our present life. Wouldn't it be odd if we practiced so hard for so many years and we ended up with the kind of material obliteration that is a common belief these days. When they survey people about what they think happens after death, many people say, just gone, just everything is gone, dispersed. Walsh goes on to say, in order to understand, understand nirvana, one should have gained the first path, called stream enterer, and have gotten rid of the fetter of personality belief. It is the one and only transcendental element in Buddhism, for which very reason no attempt should be made to define it in terms of a personal god, a higher self, or the like. Because it is transcendental, it cannot be defined. It can, however, be realized, and its realization is the aim of Buddhist practice. When the Buddha was asked what, happened after, what happens after death, he refused to answer because he said, you cannot understand it. That's what Walsh is saying. You cannot understand it until you have taken certain steps on the path. So it's useless for me to talk about it with you or speculate, for you to speculate about it. Just continue on the path. It reminds me when I was a young teenager, my my best friend and I would lie at night uh, in bed when we would, I would go over to her house to stay overnight, and we would speculate about what, what will it be like to have sex? Of course, we had not any idea. We thought it would be this very kind of cool and passionless thing. <laughs> I don't know. So we're being told about the same thing. Don't speculate about things when you have not a clue what's involved. <laughs> Just continue on the path and understanding will come to you bit by bit through actual experience. In a way, it's like being asked, well, if you've never eaten chocolate, well, what does chocolate taste like? Well, it's kind of sweet, but not sweet. Um, it's kind of creamy, and it's very delicious. Does that explain chocolate? No. And so the Buddha cannot explain nirvana. In terms that we would understand until we actually begin to experience aspects of it. The Buddha said, there is monks an unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded. 
if there were not this unborn, this unbecome, this unmade, this uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance from that which is born, become, made, and compounded. But since there is the unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, therefore a deliverance is visible. In other words, there is something beyond impermanence and its inherent suffering, and beyond the impermanent small self and its suffering. The Buddha said there is something beyond. He was very clear about that. He just said, I cannot explain to you what it is. And every time his disciples would try to pin him down, well, is there a soul that continues, body continues, he wouldn't talk about it. As Hogan said yesterday, if we look for relief of suffering in those things that are compounded, conditioned, and impermanent, and thus ultimately unsatisfying, then that relief will also be impermanent and ultimately unsatisfying. And yet that's a lesson we have to learn over and over again, isn't it? We keep looking for relief of suffering in things that are conditioned and impermanent. And that is not where the relief of suffering lies. The last two mornings, I've given you brief instructions on the four foundations of mindfulness. And as I said the first morning, if you have a practice which is very satisfying and rich for you, then of course do that practice. But we will make practice suggestions from time to time and reminders. And if those are helpful, then please follow them. Here is what the Buddha said about the four foundations. It's a seemingly simple, but ultimately very, very powerful practice in helping us see the truth of impermanence and what we in Zen call emptiness. This is from the Long Discourses of the Buddha and the Pali Canon, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta the greater discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. So this is um, Shariputra. This is Ananda talking. Thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town of theirs called Kamasadadama, and there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied, and the Lord said, There is, monks, this one way to the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, and for the realization of nirvana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. That's a rather strong recommendation. There is, monks, this one way. Sometimes that's translated as straight way direct way. For the realization of nirvana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness, what are the four? Here, monks, a monk abides, contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put away grief and clinging for the world. He abides, contemplating feelings as feelings. He abides, contemplating mind as mind, and mind objects as mind objects. 
ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, having put away clinging and grief for the world. First, the contemplation of the body. And he goes through many ways to contemplate the body, beginning with mindfulness of breathing. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating the body as body? Here, a monk, having gone into the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty place, sits down cross-legged, holding his body erect, having established mindfulness before him. It's a very interesting phrase, having established mindfulness before him. To have awareness of when we are mindful and not mindful. And to establish mindfulness. To bring it forth, to cultivate it. To live within it and know when we've stepped outside it. Mindfully he breathes in. Mindfully he breathes out. Breathing in a long breath, he knows that he breathes a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, he knows that he breathes out a long breath. And so on. It sounds ridiculously simple to be aware, oh, this is a shorter breath than the one before. Oh, this is longer. This is a long breath. But it's not so simple, as you know, to stay with each breath, particle by particle by particle of the flow of the breath. It's delicious. It's subtle. It produces a subtle pleasure when we really enter the flow of the breath, when our mind's flow is matched with the flow of the breath. She trains herself thinking, I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. So expanding the awareness and aware of the breath in the whole body, or as Hogan says, the 84,000 pores, or to become aware of the breath filling the whole body, every nook and cranny, the tiniest parts, the earlobes, the toenails. She trains herself thinking, I will breathe in, calming the whole bodily process. So to breathe in peace and breathe out love, become aware of the peace that underlies everything, the peace that passes understanding. To become aware of that peace and to breathe it in. I will breathe in, calming the whole body, He trains himself thinking, I will breathe out, calming the whole bodily process. To breathe out love, to breathe out calm to this this whole body in this room, to the body of the earth, to the bodies around the earth that are suffering. Just as a skilled turner, so this is using a, um, uh, what's it called, Hogan? Lathe, yes, uh lathe. So turning a piece of wood, just as a skilled turner or his assistant in making a long turn knows that he is making a long turn, or in making a short turn knows that he is making a short turn, so a monk in breathing in a long breath knows that she breathes in a long breath, and so trains herself thinking, I will breathe out, calming the whole bodily process. And then the Buddha talks about contemplating the body as the body internally, but also contemplating the body as as externally. So dissolving the boundary between inside and outside. Contemplating all of the phenomenon in the body. 
the arising and the vanishing phenomenon in the body. Then the four postures, mindful of the four postures to know this is walking, this is standing, this is sitting, this is lying down. This is going forward, this is going backward, this is bending, this is stretching. This is carrying the robe, this is carrying the bowl, this is eating, this is drinking, this is chewing, this is savoring. This is passing excrement or urine, clearly aware of what he is doing and walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up. In speaking or in staying silent, she is clearly aware of what she is doing. And then the second of the four foundations, feelings. We interpret that as emotions and we use loving kindness when we work with the heart. But actually it's much more subtle than that. It's to be aware, oh, this is a pleasant feeling or this is an unpleasant feeling or this is a neutral feeling. So this is below the level of something developing into a full-blown emotion. To be aware of the feeling tone. So you can close your eyes and open your awareness to the feeling tone. What is the feeling tone of this room? Is it slightly pleasant? Is it slightly unpleasant? Or is it neutral? What is the feeling tone of the rain? Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? If you turn your awareness inward within your body, is there a feeling tone? As you become aware of the body, is the feeling tone pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? This is what the Buddha taught as contemplation of feelings. But because our feelings are usually so well-developed, far beyond that subtle awareness of feeling tone is slightly pleasant, feeling tone is slightly unpleasant, or is neutral, we work with emotions more directly. And then contemplation of the mind. And monks, how does a monk abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a monk knows lust as lust and a mind free from lust, a mind that hates and a mind that is free from hate, a deluded mind and a mind that is not deluded, a contracted mind and a mind that is expanded, a distracted mind and a mind that is concentrated, a developed mind and an undeveloped mind, a mind that has surpassed suffering and a mind that has not yet surpassed suffering and so on. So he lists all these conditions of minds, which some of which we might call emotions, but he calls just conditions of mind. Ending with a liberated mind as liberated, an unliberated mind as unliberated. And we've all had that experience, if we've done enough retreats, of being aware, oh, my mind is becoming free. 
It's becoming light. Or my mind is heavy and I feel like I'm imprisoned by my mind. So to know these and then to use the tools of practice to change the conditions that are unhappy conditions, unwholesome conditions. And then contemplation of mind objects. She abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally, contemplating arising phenomenon as mind objects. Here is form. Here is the arising of form. Here is the disappearance of form. So, for example, when I look this direction, I see a form. If I look away, that form disappears. I see another form. If I look away, that form disappears. I have no knowledge that that form still exists, but it appears in my view when I look again. So there's an element of continual uh, appearance, even surprise. Oh, look what appeared. The arising of form, the disappearance of form. The arising of feelings and the disappearance of feelings. The arising of other perceptions like sounds. And the Buddha includes thoughts. The arising of mental formations and the disappearance of mental formations. The arising of emotions and the disappearance of emotions. A deep contemplation on appearance and disappearance, on impermanence which begins to free us from the prison that especially our thoughts and emotions create. The arising of awareness and the disappearance of awareness. So she abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, detached, not grasping at anything, And that monks is how a monk abides, contemplating mind objects as mind objects. In respect of the seven factors of enlightenment. So using the seven factors of enlightenment to contemplate mind objects as they arise. So the monk is aware if the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in himself. If it's present, he knows that it's present. If it's absent, he knows that it is absent. Notice there's nothing added in terms of good or bad, scolding oneself, just knowing, oh, it's present or it's not present. And he knows how the unarisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to arise. And he knows how the complete development of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes about. So knowing that mindfulness is absent, we know through practice how to bring it back. If it's unarisen, we know how to make it arise. And then the Buddha goes on through all of the seven factors of enlightenment to know if the enlightenment factor of investigation of states is present or not present. And if it's not present, how can we help it arise? The enlightenment factor of energy. Is there energy in our practice? If not, how to bring it in? Is the enlightenment factor of delight present? Or has our practice become somber and sour? And if the enlightenment factor of delight is not present, then how to bring it in? The enlightenment factor of tranquility. 
the enlightenment factor of concentration and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. So we're aware in our consciousness, in our broader consciousness, of each of these factors. And if they're not there, we have tools to bring them in. But what the Buddha says often sounds so simplistic, but we know from trying to practice even the four foundations of mindfulness or the seven factors of enlightenment, that it's not simple. It's sometimes hard work. It's often joyous work. So at this moment, is the enlightenment factor of mindfulness present? If so, what are you mindful of? Can you be mindful of the body, of the sensations in the body? Can you be mindful of a feeling tone? Is a feeling tone present? Can you be mindful of the mind ground, like a huge screen of awareness? in which all of these sensations, feeling tones, and thoughts arise, persist for a while, and then fade away. Can you shift your awareness from the objects, the mind objects, the sensations, the thoughts, the feelings, to the mind ground? holding the widest possible awareness of the mind ground. Often sound helps us expand that awareness. So we're aware of everything, but nothing in particular. In other words, the mind doesn't fixate on any one thing on sound or color, the color behind our eyelids, or the discomfort in one knee. They're all included, all included in the mind ground. All flickering in and out constantly. The Tibetans say like a child looking at a beautiful and huge temple, aware of it all and nothing in particular, taking it all in with the widest possible gaze and with wonder. On these first days of Sashin, as Hogan said, don't strive for anything special to happen but do work to condition the mind, to improve the condition of the mind so that it is receptive to insights. When the mind is very distracted and hyperactive, condition it in concentration by doing breath or body scans. When the mind is stuck, 
condition it in flexibility by holding it in mindfulness of the flow of events, the flow of sitting down, the flow of standing up, the flow of bowing, the flow of walking down the hall, the flow of the breath. If the mind becomes heavy and ponderous, condition it to being light and easy. We cannot force open the door to nirvana, but we can optimize the conditions for it to open by itself. Dogen Zenji says, the treasure chest, the treasure chest will open by itself and we will enjoy it at our will. Please practice with perseverance, with the right amount of determination and effort, with mindfulness, with curiosity, investigation, and with enjoyment. Thank you.